This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Everyone, I am back here with Dr. Richard Shepherd returning to the show. Can you remember when we last spoke, Dick? Do you know when that was? Gosh. <laughs> Briefly, no. It was a long time ago, though. And it's I, I remember it well, but listen, I, I struggle with dates at the minute. You're too kind. It was June 2022. Interview number 10, my 10th interview. Oh, right. So that was pretty cool. Let's call it number 10. Let's call it a... A celebration. I'm on number 50 now, just to oh, right. talk about me for a little bit before we That's talk fantastic. about you. Thank you. The reason we've got you here, if anyone wants to know about your career and stuff, right, we're, we're not really going to go over all ground like that. So just check yeah. out that other episode. But right. we're talking about the second season of The Truth About My Murder. So this is a, yeah. a true crime original series. Let's talk about how this show was conceived because it's quite a unique concept this isn't it i've not seen anything like it how did it come about well i i would love to claim credit for it but sadly sadly i can't i mean it came about because we we were looking at interesting different cases and there are quite a few as you know now around on various channels and we were just trying to get a different aspect to it and the key thing was it was trying to tell the story from the victim's perspective and understand better what was going on and taking their view, which is often the forgotten view, hence the name and the title. You know, we've got 10, actually, although I say it myself, stunningly good stories this time, really good indeed. So you've got four from the US, six from the UK. Yes. It's interesting you touched on the the victim focus there because I think in recent times there has been a bit of a shift within the true crime niche where years gone by the perpetrator was typically the focus whether it was documentaries books films tv series have you noticed that shift and when do you think that kind of started that we were becoming more victim focused i think as we've started to get in court you now the victim's family standing up and giving their impact statements and that really opened a door to make people think, yeah, this is you no, know, this isn't just a perpetrator. Look what it's done to that family. Look at the effects it's had for over weeks, months, years on that family. And, and understanding that the ramifications of these terrible crimes just ripple through the community. And I think that was that change in the law has altered people's perspective. And I think it's an excellent thing to have happened. I agree. I think the more you're in, I don't want to call it an industry, but the more you're in the community, let's say, and if you're hearing from victims, if you're going to conventions or if you're going to talks or panels, whatever it may be, reading books, a lot of people who've had children killed of releasing books about their story, which I think is really yeah. powerful. Well, I, I think we we can forget. I mean, we, we do focus on the victim-victim, but there are so many victims often in the close and the wider family, and indeed just neighbours and the local community are really very traumatised by some of these events. 
Yeah, it's not just the person who in a murder case gets killed, is it? It's the family, it's yeah. the friends. It could even be, you know, like yourself, the pathologist, if it's a particularly harrowing yes. case. Was there any of these 10 that maybe affected you the most? Was there any that spoke out to you as being ultimately none of, disturbing? None of them are my cases, and each of them has its own unique twist and turn, which is makes them so interesting for telling these stories. I mean, I, I have said the one that I, I sort of found most was the one where the perpetrator was the husband and he killed his wife, but he was also a, a pastor. I'm not sure why. I mean, I, I still place some people in society on a bit of a separate stall. And the thought of a pastor actually being involved in this, this is Dawn Hackney, her husband, the pastor, being involved in this and his behaviour was just amazing. It's interesting, the religious concept. I've watched a couple of the of the episodes there mm. and there was one, it might have been the first episode, and yep. there were, I think, both the, the lady who got murdered, was it Deborah Chong, am I saying Chong, that right? That's, that's yeah. right, yes. So she, she got killed by Gemma Mitchell. Yep. Right. And both of them were quite devout Christians from memory. And that was an interesting aspect. You wouldn't necessarily associate because that was a particularly gruesome one. You wouldn't necessarily associate that with them. So were there any other things that sort of took you by surprise in this series? I know there weren't your cases, but anything like that? Well, as I say, in a sense, all of them have something unique, something different, something a little unusual to see. Peter McMahon, you know, who's killed by his partner and she and her co-conspirators just put his body in a freezer i mean that was quite amazing to me and then sort of continued to to live with this body around in a freezer i've certainly had my own cases where that sort of thing has happened as well but you know you're still left thinking well how would you carry on living in a house where there's the body of your partner is in a freezer and you're continuing to work around it it's amazing each one has its own twist and turn that makes makes them interesting. For anyone that hasn't seen the first series, let me just sort of briefly outline what the concept is, because I've kind of skipped over that because this is the second season. So essentially, Dr. Shepard presents this show, and it's in this second series, 10 separate murder cases, four from the US, six from the UK. And it's basically focusing on the pathology side of how these perpetrators ended up being caught. And to do that, you use this technology. I did write it yeah. down here. I'm trying to find anatomage, it. Anatomage. The anatomage table. Yeah. So talk yeah. me through that because this is some groundbreaking tech. The anatomage table is really a teaching aid. It's a teaching screen and it's loaded with MRI images of four people, two males, two females. Uh, And these people who have donated their bodies to science and after they were dead, their bodies have been MRI scanned and the data is stored inside this machine. Now, what that means is that I can go and look at, let us say, the hip joint and I can remove all the muscles, I can remove all the blood vessels or I can highlight the blood vessels and look at them or I can look at the brain, I can look at the nervous system. It is a fantastic bit of equipment, taken a lot of time, I'm sure, by the people who've taken the MRI scan and then manipulated it to give it the coloration and the balance. 
But, you know, if I want to show someone the course of the common iliac artery, I can do that. I can show where it comes from, where it goes to, what it supplies, all of those things. It is a truly incredibly powerful bit of teaching, which we now use to demonstrate when we hear what the murderer has done. We can now use this anatomage table, um, not of the body of the victim, of course, we can't get that, but using one of the bodies stored within its memory banks, we can look, they've got an injury to the head and they've got damage to a part of the brain. We can look at that part of the brain and then we can talk about what that part of the brain might do. So does it super, so because you mentioned with the, the first lady, Deborah Chong, that she had mm. arthritis, which helped to identify her age. Yeah. And on the table, the image was sort of of a, an arthritic shoulder joint, I believe it yes. was. So yeah. I take it stuff like that can be added in to the system. Is that right? Or, yeah, or will... is it a case of the the four people that donated won't have every ailment going? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that would be a, that would be a bit rough on them. I think you know. But we'd, yes, we'd like you to have fifteen different diseases just so we could share them. <laughs> no, there are these four people which provide a sweep. Age, sex, you know, all sorts of differences are covered in those four. But there are also other components that have been specific areas like arthritis and these were scans taken from people in life and they are also loaded in but it's not a whole body it will be a, a smaller area a chest x-ray sort of thing you you could actually look at a specific disease process in the chest but that would just be in the chest rather than the whole body the powerful thing about this this thing is i can look at every inch of these four bodies from you know toenails to hair follicles on their head, absolutely amazing. Would this technology be used in conjunction with a real life post mortem, for example? So, say if you were training someone that you can't really train someone on a screen. Sure, you could, I guess, like you said, move the piece. This sounds really awful because this is someone we're talking about that's passed away. But you could, in theory, look at this table. You know, before you actually start. An incision, I, I guess, if you're trying to, if you get what I mean, well, I'd probably yeah, put it no, no, I, 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 very layman and way. <laughs> actually, yes, we do actually do that because post mortem CT scans are becoming very common now in the UK. They're becoming more and more common for use, often in people who've died suddenly, but also in criminal situations or potentially criminal situations to allow us to look inside the body to plan the post-mortem, to see what we might find, things we might want to identify more carefully. So that's already there, this technology, and it's being used. And it's sometimes used the most amazingly powerful way. Combine it with 3D printing, and I can begin to print off almost any bit of anybody's body. And why is that important? Well, it can be important because we don't like to show juries photographs with a lot of blood on or areas of injury and we certainly would never take a bit of a body to court and say look at this it shows x y or z but when we get to ct scans 3d printing we've got a very unthreatening bit of material or an unthreatening image that we can show juries and juries are being educated and are reaching better conclusions because of it how significant would it have been had this technology been available I don't know, a couple of decades ago, let's say. 
Well, um, CT scans actually do go back. You know, you you will know that lots of people will have had CT scans of their heads, their body. Mm-hmm. It's its movement in the last maybe fifteen years. Yeah, maybe a little bit more in Australia, in Switzerland. They're the two big areas that have moved it on. So it has been around. But CT scans. I mean, I remember. When I was training as a as a, a very much a junior doctor, so that's why way way back in sort of 1974, which is a long time ago, I can't even do the sums there. But sitting with the man who invented the CT scanner, and that machine is now in the Welcome Museum of Medicine in London. So wow. long time ago, fifty years, uh, 1974. Yeah, I had a horrible. No, I didn't want you to do the maths. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Is there ever a risk, I'm thinking from devil's advocate side of you, from the defence's side, so the prosecution can, let's say this evidence gets used to provide an example of an injury on someone. Yeah. Is that classed as being 100% reliable? So what I'm thinking is, could the defence team use that as a loophole to say, well, that's not an actual image of X, Y, and Z? Probably not. But of course, everything is reviewable, everything is challengeable. And one of the beauties of the CT scan is it's all digital data that's saved onto disks or saved into a computer that you can go back, assuming no one's hacked into it and changed it or done something like that, which is always a possibility now. But assuming that the files are kept safe, you can go back and you can relook at those digital images at six months, at five years, at 20 years, which of course we can't do with the postmortem. You know, we the body is as soon as they're dead, the body is continually changing. And it's one of the problems with working for the defence team, going and looking at and doing a second post-mortem examination, the body will have changed in that time being, whereas the digital images would say the same. So, And everything is challengeable. Everything is reviewable. If the defence say that's not what we think it should look like, well, the answer is, well, you know, you produce from this digital image what you think it should look like and we know we can argue what the the whys and wherefores are so this technology then it's available freely it's not like privatized or it's not just a certain company Um, that has it or what's the situation uh, it's as far as i'm aware it is run by a private company in the uk that coroners and the police will often buy into that Mm -hmm. company and it has very important religious grounds to it because there are many groups who are really very reluctant to allow a post-mortem to be performed. And if we can establish a natural cause of death using a CT scan, then we can respect their religious beliefs more closely. And that can be very, very useful and help a family cope with what is already a distressing and unpleasant situation without having knowing that their loved one has also had to undergo a post-mortem, which is against their fundamental beliefs. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Take me behind the scenes then. So let's get into the actual filming of this series. So it looks like you've filmed your portions in this state-of-the-art lab at Manchester Manchester Met Uni. So. What does a typical day of filming for The Truth About My Murder look like for Dr. Shepard? <laughs> oh, well, I have to say, I thought I worked quite hard, but film crews do work harder, I have to say. <laughs> they, 
I mean, the, the, we're, we're there at eight o'clock in the morning, which means I'm up at six, which is never a, a good a good time for me to be crawling out of my bed. And we start from then. I mean, we have the script. We will have gone through them a bit beforehand, but we'll go through them again with a, a reasonably fine tooth comb. And I will be adding my input saying, well, you can't say that, or I would phrase it differently, or we could look at this. Looking at the images that the anatomage table can produce for us how are we going to get to them how are we going to access them how are we going to record them and then it's a question of working with the team and i'm just trying to think who we had now we would have had a team of about four or five most of the time working away and we would manage to do about one program a day ish but i mean it, it, it is it is very variable obviously some have a lot more pathology than than others and are you memorizing your script like a good actor or are you reading from a teleprompt? I have to memorize it, which is a bit depressing. But at least <laughs> it, it, it does convince me that I don't have short-term memory loss. So I've, you know, I've I have undiagnosed myself with dementia, which I, I always have first thing in the morning at six o'clock. I very definitely am not functioning terribly well. No, it, it's it's relative they're very kind to me. It is relatively short pieces of speech that I have to do, but I may have to do, you know, the same one three or four times from different angles and in different ways. How involved were you with choosing the cases that were covered? There's quite a team because we have 10, which means we probably identified double that number as potentials and then had to wean it down. Uh, And obviously there was certainly one case where the family contacted the team and said this is still too raw for us we really don't want you to to show this program and so that was a really good case i mean good from our point of view but awful from their point of view and clearly they were suffering and so that case wasn't followed up so you know you have lots of cases but they are cut down by all sorts of uh, things uh, families sometimes and of course we always respect what the families want if we possibly can. I mean, I think if a case was 50 years old, we might be less tolerant of a family saying it's still a bit depressing. But then, you know, what other evidence can be gleaned from the press and from the usual sources? So let's just explore that family interaction a little bit more then. So first of all, let's say easy numbers, you've got 20 cases, you narrow it down to 10. Is the team reaching out to those before episodes get produced or is it an after-the-fact thing? Oh, no. No, no. Very, very much before. They're very sensitive about the effect that this may have. I mean, this young girl that was stabbed to death quite recently, right? Rihanna, forgive me if I've got her name wrong. Brianna. Rihanna, my apologies. Her parents are clearly very distressed and yet her mum is being just so good about talking about her feelings and her reactions and her daughter and wanting to talk about how it's affected them. So some families can do that, but some families clearly can't. And what we don't want to do is have what we think is a stunningly brilliant programme, but it is just ripping a family apart somewhere in the United Kingdom or America or, or wherever. So we we tread very carefully. The contact's always early rather than late. 
just to see what their response is like to be. And I think they always ask, do they want to take part? Do they want to talk about their loved ones, about who they were, what happened, how it's affected them? So that they're, they're they're there and involved. Yeah, that was going to be a follow-up question as to whether it's just a case of asking for permission or seeking you know help with the research. Because of the two episodes I've seen so far, and I've got a couple more to watch, one of the the lady who was killed, her, one of her best friends was on the show. So it's not just yeah. Dr. Shepard on there. You've got law enforcement that's worked the case. You've got people that worked in the hospital, friends and family as well. So it's good that they have the option to get involved, I guess. It is very important. I mean, it's the truth about my murder. And my, in that sense, is broader than the victim because, of course, the victim can't speak. But we want to hear the victim's voice through their family because they they are who know them best. And say that the last thing we would ever want to do is produce the program we think is absolutely fantastic, but for that the showing of that program to completely re-devastate some people anywhere in the world. That's you know that's that's not what we're about. What's the timeline between your involvement filming and the show coming out? What can you recall? Ooh. I think I, we were doing this filming, I think, in about August 2023. So it's four or five months. There's an awful lot of post-production stuff goes on, uh, putting it all together. It premiered on January 9th, 2024 on True Crime, for those listening. So you will be able to go watch it right now. The full series won't be out in total, I wouldn't have thought. That's right. Is it one episode a week? It's one episode a week, yeah. Yeah. I I think they, they do run... One episode a week for ten weeks, but it's go- yeah. it goes on different platforms around the world, and so I get lots of friends phoning me up saying, "I've just seen you on telly in South Africa or Poland or or wherever," which is which is quite gratifying. A natural question for me to ask: in a world where there's a plethora of true crime documentaries, mm. films, books. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you, what do you think sets the truth about my murder apart from the rest? Well, I hope we're empathic. I I, I think it is, almost comes with the title, the truth about my murder. And I do hope with the families and with how we tell the tale that we are empathic and understanding of the victim and how it's affected the people that that are close to them, as well as just sometimes flagging up in this this world i'm afraid that still confuses and disturbs me that people who are your best mates and people who you think are nice you know are suddenly likely to cut you up and put you in suitcases and drive you down to devon uh, and then go to church the following sunday so the world is very strange we have to be trusting and caring and magnanimous but we also have to be just a little aware that there are some awful people out there. I like the pathology aspect because that's, before I asked you that question, I said I kind of know the answer. Here's my two cents, if you like. I think the pathology side of these true crime cases often gets overlooked, Hmm. significantly so. When researching something, typically all you'll see is you're lucky if you figure out who the actual pathologist was that did the postmortem when you're doing general research. But what you'll get, if you're lucky enough to get that, it'll say the cause of death was X, Y, and Z. And you might get two sentences. Yeah. And it's sort of, you don't want to dig into it too deep because it's so devastating, but it almost doesn't scratch the itch of 
for me anyway, wanting to know more about the actual anatomy and how yes. the incident led to someone's death. Yeah. The fact that it's obviously you as well, you know, it's you, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that you're explaining to us, I think is really helpful because it's sometimes there's no connection in it. And that's why it can sometimes not feel real because you don't yeah. actually know how X caused Y, if that makes sense. Yes, I, I do. And I think this is the anatomist table is is great for doing that. And it is interesting, having given evidence in hundreds of trials over the years, you know, there are so, some times when it becomes clear that the jury do actually want to understand why a gunshot wound killed someone, not just that they were shot, because lots of people get shot and lots of people don't die as a result of it, but lots of people do. So sometimes there is this pressure for a real understanding of the anatomy and sometimes there isn't and i've always been interested in, the, in this flux that goes backwards and forwards but if the anatomage table gives us the chance to explain what's going on and that's a really powerful tool i'm interested in how you converted jargon speak because i imagine in any industry it's the same but you'll have jargon won't you oh, stuff yeah. that only means something to you guys how easy or difficult did you find it to convert that to language that the layman watching is going to understand? Because it's quite a complex thing, pathology, of course it is. Well, I mean, yeah, medicine is a language on its own. And when doctors are talking to each other, we we talk in medicine because it's precise, it's quick, and it means we can convey sometimes quite complex ideas quite quickly and precisely. But I've spent my whole career writing reports in medicine, but then giving evidence to juries in plain English. And it's, you know, it's, I can't, there's no point in standing up in front of a jury and speaking medicine because they won't understand. And yet they have to understand not just the gross findings, but the minutiae sometimes. And part of my skill, if I have any, is this ability to talk at that level too, without being condescending, I hope. I mean, that's the thing you have to be wary of and going too silly. But I always try and talk to a jury or actually talk to the lawyers in that sense, because they can speak law, but they can't speak medicine. And so we have to talk in ways that an intelligent person can understand. What do you hope people take from this series? I hope all sorts of things. The fact that actually we pathologists and police, although we can sometimes seem very hard and professional about how we do our job, you know, such and such and such, and such it's very clear, this, this, this happened there. I think that to take away from that, that actually we have to protect ourselves by being slightly professional but actually we are all much more empathic and caring. I mean, people will often say to me, you know, oh, well, you just, you know, I know what you do. You you dissect people and there's nothing caring about that. But there is because I'm caring for that person's life and for the resolution of their murder and the conviction of the people that did it. So there can be care even in what seems to be quite a destructive process. And I hope people will understand that that it is a process, but there is behind it and within it care that will support them. But there's also technology, there's also 
intelligence, there's also hard work. Do you think there would be scope in the future? I mean, we're in the middle of season two at the moment, so I'm not going to jump the gun. But it seems like there's a you've explored the US, the UK. Do you think there would be scope to go further afield, potentially, if, if future seasons were commissioned? I think that murder is an international event. And I can think of two or three cases, I mean, without really struggling to put my hat on, I can think of two or three cases in Japan and the Far East that are really quite fascinating that would be worthwhile exploring. The key thing is, of course, that the people watching it have to be able to relate on a level with it. And we have to be careful that that understanding and that social link can still be there. But sadly, 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 you know, murders are worldwide. I think that's, with it being American and English, UK, whatever you want to call it, British, I think there's enough of a cultural link there, isn't there? Yeah. So that it makes sense. You'd be cautious, possibly, if you went further afield. You'd spend half the time trying to set the scene and provide culture context that it could detract from the story, you know? Yes, you know, and, and I think that often the culture can be very different, sometimes only in a very small area, but in that small area, it is so totally different uh, that explaining why people aren't particularly fussed that X has happened, whereas we would be horrified that that had happened anywhere. They go, well, it's just the way we manage in our community. Well, you know, and, and there is that problem of dealing with the cultural differences. So just to remind everyone, The Truth About My Murder Season 2, it premiered on January 9th, 2024 on True Crime. So you can watch the ones you've missed already if you haven't caught it and the new episodes will come out. I believe in April, you are going to CrimeCon in Glasgow, which is partnered by True Crime. Do you want to plug yes. that? Oh, please. Yes, it's a weekend in Glasgow. I think I've been persuaded that I'm going to go and enjoy a virtual reality crime scene which will be which will be fun i'll have okay. to i'm always wary about these things because i'm not sure not sure i'm going to get it right but so that should be good i mean the the crime con things are always fantastic fun if you're interested in crime in the investigation of crime uh, and the outcome of crime then you know come along to glasgow and just to plug the london one the date of which i can't remember but i'm sure someone will provide you with sometime in june i think there's a two-day one in London, which has been fantastic when I've been there. Well, this year it's in September. Oh, well, thanks. So <laughs> you're off. You September, yeah. That's the, I'll be going to that one. I'm not going to Glasgow, but I'll be in right. September, which is the okay. 21st and the 22nd. Use the code BRITISH for 10% off. And yeah. that's CrimeCon partnered by <laughs> True Crime. Well, Dick, thank you for that. And I hope not the show is received well. And thank I'm sure we'll cross much. paths again in the future. Thanks for coming Well, another, another year and a half, maybe. Maybe. I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully sooner. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. Cheers.